Hello, hello. I'm Andrew Van, and this is the Media Diary Podcast, where I go over the movies, music, TV shows, what have you, that recently caught my attention and I wanted to share my opinions on. Today, I'm going to be going through everything I consumed over the past winter season, starting with movies before going into music, and then miscellaneous stuff like comics and podcasts. I'm not going to lie, this winter has been a pretty bleak one. Between the endless process of settling in to the new house I bought, and returning to the workforce after a year and a half of quarantining, I've been pretty exhausted. And while the ever-present threat of COVID in the United States has kept my obligations pretty minimal, seasonal depression has pretty much canceled any positive effects of that. I didn't end up putting out seasonal anime reviews for Fall 21 and Winter 22 as a result of this. Nevertheless, I've still managed to watch several movies per week with my friends on Discord during all of this, so let's dig into some of the movies I've watched recently. First up is The Matrix Resurrections. The discourse has largely moved on from this movie, but the fourth Matrix film had quite a hold on the chuds of the internet for quite a while. Personally, I had a lot of fun with this film. It spends a lot of time, particularly in the beginning, commenting on its own existence, and in general, kind of feels like an afterword for the whole series, which is definitely intentional. It's not trying to start a new trilogy, it is not even trying to revolutionize action movies like the original. Neil Patrick Harris was perfect casting, and the new actors embodying Morpheus and Agent Smith play those characters charismatically. My main complaint with the film is that I wish Trinity's arc was a little bit more obvious. In a film series that is typically as blunt as its fetishistic machine gun fire, her emotional journey was surprisingly subdued, and I get that she's not the point of view character for the film, so it kinda had to all happen in these brief moments where she interacts with Neo in the coffee shop. But yeah, I kind of wish that there was just more of her overall in the film, especially given the ending. The next film I want to talk about is The Harder They Fall. As somebody who doesn't religiously follow what's being put out on streaming services, this one got lost in the shuffle for me, at least for a while. I saw the trailer for it, thought it looked interesting, and proceeded to forget that it existed until one of my partners mentioned it again, having seen it herself. And I was just kind of like, oh, that that came out? I, I heard nothing. Which is disappointing, because this film is fucking great. Like, I'm not usually a Western fan, but the cast and premise of this film is just... <laughs> I'll basically see anything featuring Lakeith Stanfield, my problematic husband, and Idris Elba is in full villainous daddy mode with this movie. But honestly, the whole cast, whether or not I recognize them from other movies, were bringing big personalities to their characters. And I think that what's revolutionary about this film doesn't come down to just the historical accuracy of representing African Americans as cowboys, so much as it is a movie 
movie where black people are allowed to control the entire situation. The heroes, the villains, both sides of this conflict are entirely in the hands of African Americans, with the few white characters relegated to being irrelevant and or powerless. Next up, I want to talk about a couple of movies kind of in conversation with one another, because Disney and Pixar managed to pump out five feature-length animated movies in the last year, of which four I've seen. I've previously talked about my hatred for this kind of a rollout schedule in my episode about watching the entire MCU, but the fatigue that comes with this is probably my least favorite part of Disney's near monopoly on the entertainment industry. Whether it's their animated features or their Marvel movies, it's difficult anymore to watch these film in a near vacuum due to their inescapable cultural buzz. So yeah, let's uh, let's go through these. Uh, first up is Rhea and the Last Dragon, which I felt like was aggressively fine. I didn't so much care for Aquafina's casting as the titular dragon. Generally, the story was alright, and I'm glad to see Kelly Marie Tran is getting some more Disney bucks after all the harassment she had to endure from The Last Jedi. I think it's always going to be a bit tainted for me because of how it was used as an excuse to chase Lindsay Ellis off of the internet. Luca, on the other hand, held even less of my attention, but was at least visually interesting. This was a good one, I think, for kids rather than adults. It's got kind of a slice-of-life vibe, in my opinion. And now we're on to the two big ones that came out recently, which are Encanto and Turning Red. I'm kind of conflicted over Encanto. I think it nails what it's trying to say about family. But on the flip side, it's very Lin-Manuel Miranda on the music end. I know a lot of people in the musical community are over the moon about Hamilton, that it's this big cultural moment from the 2010s, but like, I still feel like the guy is kind of hit or miss, like he's either amazing or kind of cringy in mid. And he's not great at writing characters that don't feel like him. So every once in a while it felt like our main character was suddenly possessed by the spirit of Lin-Manuel Miranda. But yeah, overall I think the theming of it is really good. It just comes down to a lot of my personal tastes about the music. Whereas I am unambiguously in love with Turning Red. Top 5 picks are in my opinion opinion easily. Much like Encanto, it's centered around talking about family dynamics. This one talking a bit more about diaspora communities. One of my closest friends is first generation, and in response to the very many times she gets pulled away from things to deal with family matters, even as an adult, I'll say to her, yeah, I get it, your time is not your own. And when Mei Lin has to turn down karaoke with her friends to go help her mom at the beginning of the film, I had to physically stop myself from saying that out of habit. Now, besides nailing a lot of the qualities of diaspora culture, this film is so good at capturing young female friendship. I got near constant flashbacks to my sister and her friends growing up. I, I love these characters. They're all fucking gremlins. 
Now, getting away from Disney, I ended up watching the latest James Bond movie, No Time to Die, with one of my partners who is a die-hard Daniel Craig fan, and we had a really good time. This is allegedly going to be his last film as Bond, and it felt like he finally got to play a more human version of Bond. Like, at one point, Ana de Armas shows up as a Bond girl, who I already felt like was too young for her real-life ex-boyfriend, Ben Affleck, much less Daniel Craig. But Bond does not fuck her. Doesn't even get in a little smooch or nothing. And they let her rock a motherfucking machine gun in a dress, and it's so good! She gets a fight scene that's like crunchy. You feel every blow of it. Ugh, it's so good. And you get a lot of humanizing moments for Bond himself. Going into the film, he has retired from MI6, and as such is, like, allowed to have friends and people he knows. Like, what a fucking concept that is. Wow. Like, it makes me think about how the Mission Impossible movies have only gotten better the more that Ethan Hunt actually has a team of people who give a shit about him. Main complaint with the film is that Remy Malik's villain feels a little underwhelming, forgettable even, but it's really well paced, I like this version of the character, and it's a fitting send-off for Daniel Craig's time as Bond. And the last film that I want to talk about today is Last Night in Soho, an Edgar Wright joint. I, I really want to like him as a director, but everything he does leaves me with just like a little bit of like, uh in the background, like, oh, Baby Driver is relentlessly cool and full of great action moments, but Kevin Spacey is there. And we've got questionable representation of neurodivergence. Or there's Scott Pilgrim, a really great adaptation of a kind of problematic comic. And so Last Night in Soho is kind of the same deal. It is a gorgeous movie. You'll get these sequences that are trying to visually capture a feeling of nostalgia, where everything glows and feels so perfect. But without giving any spoilers, this is a hard movie to love if you have any empathy for sex workers. And I think its ending is genuinely bad. I'd vaguely heard that the script for this was written like a decade ago, where I think its problematic elements would have been glossed over at the time. But watching it these days, I'm just kind of put off by the sexual violence in this film, even though it feels like it's not really reveling in that. I, I don't know, the, like, last third of this movie really left me cold like little else. Which is sad, because I really do want to see Edgar Wright make a film that I don't have any problems with, and it's dope to see a movie that feels, like, uniquely like British cinema play in the United States. <sighs> So, let's talk music. I spent a good deal of last fall getting increasingly more hyped up for the newest album by Zeal and Ardor. Little disappointed that they decided to name the album Zeal and Ardor. Feels like a ploy to cover up the existence of their self-titled demo tape, but whatever. I'm basically in fanboy mode for this one. I just want more. 
more and more and more of this band. The track Gutter Damerunged wound up really high on my best songs of 2021 list, but Church Burns and Golden Lyre are also some top picks of mine from this album. For the uninitiated, this band combined blues and black metal into a harrowing combination, and it seems like on this record in particular, they're trying to introduce a few more outside influences. In particular, the song Immersion reminds me of the band Astronoid that actually toured with Zealand Ardor in North America a couple of years back, using the swelling guitar strums of black metal to build up something actually very shimmery and bright, yet different from the shoegazed influence sounds of, like, Death Heaven. Doubtless, this is going to wind up on my end-of-the-year list. The next project I want to talk about is Denzel Curry's newest album, Melt My Eyes, See Your Future. I was kind of surprised that Denzel didn't put out more material during the pandemic, seeing as he released Taboo, Zoo, and Unlocked all in the space of three years. But Melt My Eyes was well worth the wait. The production on this project is insane, vivid, lush, and packed with 90s Nostalgia. Give me the break beats. Denzel's sounding a little less freaky on this project than, say, Taboo or Imperial, but it seems like he's trying to go for a more contemplative and mature sound on this record overall, and it is working. Oh my god, it is working. And the last album that I'm going to talk about here is Requiem, the latest album by Korn, who have been on kind of an upward swing in their career for the last decade. Curiously, Requiem is a ultra-tight nine tracks. Usually this band pumps out anywhere between 14 and 18 songs for an album cycle, but I'm certainly a fan of Less Is More, and at nine tracks on a single disc, I might actually pick this up on vinyl. And while 2019's The Nothing was a pretty relentless and heavy project, Requiem actually ends up pretty melodic and oddly sensual by comparison. Now this is corn after all, so don't get too ahead of yourselves. There's still some dumb scatting on this record. But a lot of the choruses are like very smooth. There's even spots where his vocal delivery I would describe as, like, breathy, and it gives Requiem a distinct vibe within their discography. And with that, we're onto the miscellaneous stuff. While I didn't put out formal episodes for the last couple of anime seasons, I have been watching different shows, and I figure this is as good a place as any to give a little talk about some of the highlights. From Summer 21, I really liked Remake Our Lives and Sunny Boy. Remake Our Lives being about a young yuppie who is sent back to his college days to try to make something of himself. It captures a lot of the struggles of art school, and particularly some of the toxic elements of it, and that all made me pretty nostalgic for my time spent in art school. Sunny Boy, on the other hand, reminded me of the American TV show Lost, 
A bunch of students in this show discover that their school one day is cast into a blank void, and that there are new mysterious powers and rules to this environment that they then begin to explore. Initially, I was kind of put off by the main characters being very anti-authority, and kind of a, like, I'm too good for society sort of way, but it seemed to very quickly change into a show about exploring the kind of weird sci-fi elements of what the hell is going on. And from fall 2021, I enjoyed Blue Period, which was yet another show that gave me art school flashbacks, as well as Comey Can't Communicate, which is about a girl who is so hot that everybody is too busy simping for her to realize that she is a social disaster and cannot bring herself to speak a word to another person. And for winter 2022, I didn't watch anything. Nothing grabbed my attention, and quite frankly, I'm really upset that Platinum End got a fucking anime adaptation. On a related note to anime, I recently got one of my friends back into reading manga. When we were kids, he had a subscription to the English version of Shonen Jump when that first came to America. Basically, I would trade him my Tankubans that I would buy, and in return, he would let me borrow Shonen Jump so I could read the newest chapters of certain series. Almost 20 years on, he doesn't read all that much comics, but while he was staying over for a couple of days, I showed him Die Dark and Chainsaw Man, which, to my surprise, he devoured rather quickly. But the big one that I got him to read was Uzumaki, which he could not put down until he finished. You know, sometimes it just takes the uh, right story to get somebody interested in a medium again. My buddy is into horror as a genre, and all three of the manga I listed have elements of that, but he also mentioned appreciating the sense of humor that Die Dark and Chainsaw Man had going for them. Now, some comics that I read recently that I found pretty impressive was Fun Girl, which is done by the author of the webcomic War and Peas. It follows the misadventures of a young woman working at a mortuary as she tries and fails spectacularly to understand and sympathize with the people in her life. There's some really gross shit in here, so like, get ready for corpse mutilation and chunky period blood on top of all the sexual content. For the first time in a while, I actually bought a non-fiction book that I read pretty quickly, and that was Nick Middleton's An Atlas of Countries That Don't Exist. I'm a bit of a geography nut, and this book chronicles a whole bunch of largely unrecognized countries or breakaway states throughout the world. Some of them I was familiar with, and others are little tiny curiosities. I think a lot of people who have either been on the internet or know what a libertarian is are familiar with Sealand, a small platform in the North Sea constructed during World War II that various chuckle fucks have claimed to be an independent nation over the years. But the book also covers countries that used to exist, like Tibet, or Tuva. I heard about this book through Geography Now's YouTube channel. They're a great resource for learning about different countries, and have often talked about autonomous zones and breakaway regions when covering different places. 
And lastly, I wanted to take a minute to talk about the video essay Anthony Bourdain, A Love Story by Lola Sebastian. So far, this is my favorite video essay to drop in 2022, in part because Lola Sebastian's style of video is a lot less argumentative than most video essays that I consume. It's it's more of a vibe. Essentially, she uses Anthony Bourdain's death as a jumping off point to talk about a whole bunch of different things. Parasocial relationships, grief, legacy, marketing, cancel culture, authenticity, and it does so in a very sincere, uncynical sort of way. And I like how a lot of the essay talks about how Bourdain changed or attempted to react to his own career, and the struggle to do that all in a very public setting. This man worked over 200 days a year in front of the camera, shooting long days for nearly 20 years. And it's on that note that I'm going to wrap up this episode. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud under Media Diary Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening to my cruddy opinions.